The 82-game preseason is in the books, and it's finally time for the real season. Don't miss out on any of the NBA playoff action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. From the play-in tournament through the finals, DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code ROSS. New customers bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's code ROSS only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net in New York. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. It's the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Oh, yeah, it is. But it's not just any Ross Tucker Football Podcast. It is a Monster Monday presented by DraftKings, America's number one rated sports book app. More on that a little bit later in the show because it is Super Bowl week 2021. Super Bowl 55, if you can believe that. My high school football number, 55 in your program, number one in your heart. I am Ross Tucker, former NFL offensive lineman. Got a bunch of podcasts. We'll do the College Draft podcast today with Emery Hunt. You're going to enjoy that one. Not only will we talk about some of the things that Emery saw from the Senior Bowl and the Hula Bowl, but what scouting lessons should there be from this year's two Super Bowl teams. I've got a bunch. Looking forward to breaking that down with Emery on the College Draft Podcast today. We'll have the official Super Bowl plays on the Even Money Podcast tomorrow. Fantasy Feast for the DFS and Prop Bets on Wednesday. Going to be an awesome, awesome week. We'll have a new Spread the Word winner at Ross Tucker NFL, at Ross Tucker Pod. Just engage in any way. All we're asking you to do is engage in any way on any platform, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It all counts. Sponsor confirmation email winner. Could be 100 Flowers. Could be DraftKings. Could be Simply Safe. Could be ExpressVPN. Got a bunch of awesome sponsors that you can take advantage of this week and maybe win a signed press pass or football card or picture. By the way, over the weekend, I sent them all out. If I owed you an autograph, Assigned press pass or whatever, it's out. You got it. It's on the way. So good for that. And YouTube shout out, youtube.com slash Ross Tucker NFL. Just subscribe. It's free. Comment. And we will be good to go with you hopefully being the winner of a cameo style shout out. I gave one to Paul Wallace over the weekend. But for right now, very excited about today's guest. It's Big Show time. The Big Show. So today's guest is Jenny Brentis. She's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. She's been one of the best pro football writers for actually a long time now, Jenny. I remember when it felt like you were new kid on the block, and now it's probably been, what, 10 years? That's really nice of you to say. Uh, I guess so. The first Super Bowl, actually, I covered was Super Bowl 42, the, the Giants defeating the Patriots. But I was kind of a, a backup, you know, young kid on the Star Ledger team. So, yeah, something like that, 10 years or so. That is amazing. Check out Jenny 
on Twitter at Jenny Ventus, V-R-E-N-T-A-S. And there's a bunch of reasons, Jenny, why I wanted to talk to you today, uh, primarily because you've done a lot of work for Sports Illustrated on two of the major topics going on in the NFL right now. That is everything Houston Texans and Jack Easterby, as well as now that the hiring cycle is over, minority hiring in the NFL. Although I wanted to start with, I think, a funny anecdote, Jenny. Uh, I was Jenny and I was speaking on Saturday morning about uh, a project that Jenny's working on. And I was with my daughters. They're seven and eight. And we were driving to my mom's house, Grammy's house, to visit with her. And at the end of the call, one of my daughters was like, who was that? And I said, well, that was Jenny. What does she do? Well, she writes about football. Oh, like, I think that that was, and not that I've ever given them any reason to think anything otherwise, but I think that might have been like the first introduction to my daughters that, because they have asked a couple times if they could play football. And I said, sure, if you want to. And then they're always like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> but I think that that was their first introduction into, wow, like, yeah, daddy, daddy's football, daddy played football, daddy does football now. I think that was their first intro into like, whoa, I could, I could write about football kind of like daddy does. It was pretty cool, Jenny. That's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. And yeah, maybe you have some budding sports writers sitting in the back seat. <laughs> Uh, well, that and I think they were on their iPads uh, <laughs> looking at Minecraft or something uh, that they're into. But yes, they thought that was cool. And, you know, it's funny. Um, I feel like anytime a guy talks about women in sports, they feel like they need to reference their daughters. <laughs> and I, it, it probably shouldn't be that way. But in all sincerity, it's hard not to, Jenny. Like with Jennifer King becoming the first black female to get a full-time coaching position. It's hard not to look at that from my perspective now. And I think I would always have thought that that was cool, right? Like, I think I would always have thought that's cool that, you know, that they're breaking down that barrier and Jennifer is getting that opportunity. But when you do have daughters, there's no question, at least in my mind, it just takes anything like that to a totally different level because you can imagine your child, your daughters wanting to do something like that, that might be, maybe isn't that common and having to break down a barrier. You know, maybe they do want to be the first female owner or I guess they wouldn't even be the first for that, but whatever, right. General manager in the NFL, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's cool. And it certainly resonates more, I think right or wrong, at least for me, and I'm I'm open to admit it when you have daughters like I do. No, I, that makes total sense because it's maybe a barrier that doesn't exist or a door that could be open. I mean, it's exciting to know that your child can consider every career path as more normal. And I think that's really been the focus of a lot of the NFL's efforts. Sam Rappaport at the league office has really created this pipeline or this opportunity for qualified female candidates to network with general managers and head coaches. And her goal has always been, you know, maybe not let's set a certain benchmark for when there would be a first female GM, but just make women in the coaching ranks and in the scouting ranks ubiquitous. And that is the most important thing. That's always been her goal. And she's really done a lot of work and to, toward that end. And Jennifer King is a great example of that. 
Do you know offhand, I'm putting you on the spot here, do you know about how many female scouts, coaches, executives there are? I mean, I can think of like four or five coaches maybe off the top mm -hmm. of my head. Yeah, I, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I do know that a couple dozen women have gotten opportunities in the college or pro ranks sort of as a function of this program. And that could be internships, that could be uh, a variety of roles in a front office and a coaching staff. Um, so it really has, you know, Callie Brownson with the Browns and Jennifer King and Lori Locust with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's Katie Sowers with the four, uh, previously with the 49ers. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, now it's kind of not. I remember when Katie Sowers was coaching in the Super Bowl last year and there was a huge crowd around her at media night. Um, and I'm sure that Lori Locust will have a lot of interviews, you know, being the assistant defensive line coach for the Bucks this year. But now it's kind of it's happening more than one year in a row. And so you do kind of see that it's just normalizing it, which is really what the goal is. I was just going to say that you, you, you'll you know when it's when progress has really been made or when the opportunities are really there on a, on a large scale, when we stop talking about it, you know, when it's not, when it's not like a surprising thing or a new thing, it's just kind of part of it. But anyway, I, I thought that was cool. I've spoken with Callie before, actually, when she was uh, head of recruiting at Dartmouth, I spoke with her. So it's kind of cool um, to see where she is now. Speaking of hiring, uh, Jenny, you have been all over, uh, you and your colleagues at Sports Illustrated, all over the Houston Texans situation with, I don't know, two or three really well-sourced articles, specifically as it relates to Jack Easterby. I am fascinated by this guy. I can't recall another situation like this. And I guess I'll, I'll lay out two parts of it. Number one, a guy that essentially went from team chaplain to more or less running a franchise. That is, is highly unusual. The second thing, though, is to have a guy go from being sort of an unknown to being so vilified. And I'm not saying that that's because of your story, Jenny. I'm just saying you don't really hear anything positive. I mean, I go on the radio in Houston and I, I mean, he is like uh, public enemy number one to the point where I, I almost feel a little bad for him, right? Like I never met the guy. Like I think like he can't be that bad, but there's nobody, there's nobody kind of on the other side that's sort of um, more or less sticking up for him. So I guess I just wanted to get the background on how you became interested in him and started to do the sourcing to write uh, the very, very well-sourced stories that you have? Well, I think the first interest was sort of what you described, this unusual path from starting out as a team chaplain uh, to becoming a character coach with the Patriots and to last season being the interim GM of the Texans after Bill O'Brien was fired. So it was a pretty fast rise, and we wanted to just – how did this happen? What was the route that he took? You know, what were things he learned along the way? How has this role grown? Um, and I think what became clear was there are a lot of people who have different opinions across the spectrum. Um, there are people who say he, you know, performed their wedding and uh, was a beloved chaplain and an important figure in their life. Uh, and then there were other people in Houston who described 
his playing a role in uh, kind of sowing a culture of, of distrust and division um, and that he had the owner's ear in Houston. And that really resulted in a lot of influence. And so I think there are people who have interacted with him or knew him at different points along his path. And I think uh, that kind of determined the experience that they had in some ways, whereas people who knew him in Houston have had a different experience than perhaps the players that he was really close with in New England and was uh, had developed strong relationships across the locker room there. Okay, so I'm glad you said that. So you have spoken with people that really like him, stand by him, and would, would put in a good word for him, so to speak. Yeah, I think, you know, in New England, it's it certainly was true that he built a broad-based, you know, relationships all the way across the locker room. And yeah, there were players uh, who he, he performed their weddings, um, was a, a counselor through difficult times, whether it be on the field or off the field. Um, and I think his role is, has been different in Houston. So he has uh, ascended to the top of the organization. And I think uh, on one level that that comes with it, you know, you can't necessarily have those same locker room relationships that maybe you had in a different role. Um, but also people in Houston describe this uh, culture that, you know, he played a role in, in creating there, which is what we wrote a little bit about in the story. Um, and also, you know, how that uh, his relationship with the owner, Cal McNair, um, has really played a factor in a lot of the decisions they've made. Right. Yeah. I mean, Ultimately, in my experience in the NFL, the only thing that really matters is who the owner likes and who the owner trusts, and that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's probably a lot of businesses that are out there. I guess I'm curious, in, in all of your research, and it was very well researched, have you, re have you found out anything about Deshaun Watson and Jack Easterby, their relationship how Watson feels about Easterby? Because I guess that's sort of, to advance the story, that's sort of the next thing that everybody's curious about. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Watson's future in Houston has become so uncertain so quickly. Um, and he signs an extension with the Texans in early September. Uh, now he's put in a trade request, and we're wondering what the compensation will be. Uh, you know, Houston has said he's their quarterback, um, but – Clearly, he would like a fresh start somewhere else. And so you start to look at how did this happen? And I think there's a lot of factors at play. Um, and we described some of those in, in the second story that we did, um, you know, in relation to how um, things were handled within the organization, how things were handled with, with the hiring process, you know, asking for Watson's input in the hiring process, and then him feeling uh, a little caught off guard when some of those decisions were made. Uh, learning things sort of along with the rest of the, the world. Um, and you could say, okay, maybe a franchise quarterback is not usually involved in those decisions, but if you're told that you're going to be involved in those decisions. And so I think the question is really, you know, who has the owner's ear and, you know, clearly Jack Easterby has the owner's ear and um, moving forward. Now they've got a, a a difficult situation to sort through. You know, you you hit on this draft pick. I mean, Deshaun Watson is an MVP caliber player, even though the Texans were 4-12 and 12 last season. Uh, look at the season that he had. There's, you know, he's a remarkable football player. He's an absolute success at the position, uh, and now he wants to play somewhere else. Yeah, you know what, Jenny? It really – they really screwed this up because – if you if you don't want Deshaun's opinion, 
then don't ask for it. But if you involve him in the process and ask for his opinion, and then by various accounts, I don't know if you guys had this as well, but by various accounts, don't go totally against what he what he said, then what are you really doing? I mean, you know, there's multiple reports out there that he said he really liked Eric Bieniemy, And I believe the Houston Texans were the only team that did not interview Bieniemy during the bye week. Which, you know, to me, if I if, if I was Deshaun Watson, that would just come across as so disrespectful. It's like, you ask me my opinion, I tell you this guy, and then you're the only team that didn't interview him during the bye week. It's almost like, Jenny, they're going out of their way to say, we don't care what you think, Deshaun, we're going to do what we want to do. It's like, like if they had, if they had, you know, I remember when Jeffrey Lurie let go of Chip Kelly, he talked about emotional intelligence. Like if the Texans had any sort of emotional intelligence, they would know that at a minimum you interview the enemy that first week to at least placate Deshaun Watson and at least let him feel like, okay, we are listening to Sean and we interviewed your guy, but they didn't even do that. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes has attested to Watson just how instrumental Bienemy has been in his development. And if you have one conversation with Eric Bienemy, you can tell that he's a fantastic leader, a really good communicator, and someone that uh, has brought out the best in a lot of his players. I think what's interesting now is Watson is representing a, a new era of player empowerment in the NFL. We've seen it in other leagues, notably the NBA. But here you have a player saying, I want to chart my own path. My career is finite. I'm a talented player. I want to be somewhere else uh, and holding the organization accountable. You don't see that often in the NFL. And ownership is the one thing that generally doesn't change. Sometimes we see changes, but far more rare than, say, head coach or GM. Um, and so for a quarterback to hold an organization accountable all the way up to the ownership level um, and then to use the leverage he has as being one of the best players in the NFL, being a young player, a true face of the franchise. Um, I think it's something special that he's doing. We're not sure how it's going to work out, but I think it's representative of what we may see this offseason and in years to come. You know, it's a good point you make because it feels like on some level last year, Brady said to the Patriots, look, I, I, I want to go somewhere else. Like, I, I, I need to go somewhere else. Matthew Stafford, very clearly. Now, it doesn't feel like – it feels like their organizations were very amenable to it. But maybe, obviously, the Texans at this point at least aren't. But it does feel like more of these guys are thinking, look, this is my only shot at this thing. Like, I want to go somewhere else where they feel like they have a better opportunity. Um, two more quick ones, Jenny. One on – we mentioned Eric Bieniemy. The hiring cycle is over. I know you've done a bunch of work on minority hiring. I believe it's two head coaches of color out of the seven, Salah and Cully. And then I think, is it three or four of the GMs? Uh, I'm trying to think. Atlanta for sure. Washington, Detroit. Detroit. I don't know if I'm missing one. Yeah, that sounds right. Yep. So – do you feel like progress is being made? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, why not? And what can be done? Yeah, I think some of the GM hires were, were encouraging, Ross. Um, 
But as far as the head coaching ranks um, and just overall in, in the league, um, the number of coaches, head coaches of color is, is lagging. Now we have five out of 32 uh, and it's just such a small number. Three of those, only three head coaches are black in a league that's predominantly black. And the NFL took some additional measures last off season to try to compel more teams to consider a broader web of candidates um, to try to, uh, you know, get ownership to, you know, overcome perhaps some of these inherent biases. But I think really you have two factors at play here. One is that, you know, you can, you can implement all the measures you want, but it's really ultimately at the end of the day up to the owner. And I think a lot of owners are still, you know, hiring a person that they're quote unquote comfortable with. And I think that's the root of the problem is that you need to realize that the people you're comfortable with, that might not be the best option for your team and that your own biases play a role in who you're comfortable with. That's a very dangerous metric, I think. And secondly is the path upward through organizations that would put candidates in a position to be considered for head coaching jobs. And the NFL extended the Rooney rule to coordinators last offseason, which I think was a good measure in this regard. But one gap in that is the assembling of new staffs it doesn't apply to, right? Because if you interview for a head coaching position, part of that interview is who you're going to be able to get on your staff. So you have essentially seven new staffs being created and that same rule of saying, hey, you have to interview a couple candidates of color for the coordinator positions doesn't apply there. So you essentially have staffs being created where the coordinator positions um, are entirely of the head coach's choosing. And I think Dan Campbell in Detroit has done a really good job. He's built a really fantastic staff there. Um, but you get into this kind of mindset of hiring people you're close with, hiring people you're comfortable with, which on one level, okay, that makes sense. You're a head coach. You want to be surrounded by people you trust. But that also creates this situation where candidates of color are sometimes stuck in running back coach positions and never have a chance to be an OC or, you know, on the defensive side of the ball, position coach uh, spots, never have the chance to elevate. So if you don't elevate to a coordinator role, you're not going to be, in most cases, considered uh, to be a head coach. So I think those are the two areas that the NFL has tried to take steps to correct, but you, there's just a gap that hasn't been closed. And I think it's really unfortunate because, as I said before, what 75% of the league is black. And, you know, at the top ranks, the people running organizations, you don't see that representation. And that says something that's pretty troubling. Check her out on Twitter at Jenny Vrentis, V-R-E-N-T-A-S. Jenny, it's Super Bowl week. What are, you, what are you working on? I know what you're working on. I just don't know if you're allowed to say it or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have, I have a, a one project in the works that's a little bit unrelated to both teams or uh, who are currently in the game, but it's a little bit of the past Super Bowl history. Um, and then I'm also doing Greg Bishop and I, um, he's done it for seven years now. And I I joined him last year, but our Super Bowl cover story. So that's pretty uh, pretty cool reporting experience. You try to tell the backstories in depth. We do a lot of reporting the two weeks leading up to the game at, to be able to tell this complete picture of a season for whoever wins. So we're doing that today. We had some interviews over the weekend. We've got a, a full day of interviews today, just trying to learn as much as we can. And really, this is a special Super Bowl, Ross. I mean, it's 
every year is special, obviously, but it's just such a compelling storyline with Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs trying to build the dynasty and Tom Brady trying to add to the dynasty he had in New England, now out on his own. I mean, it's really a, a fantastic matchup and a lot, uh, a lot of significance, I think, that will come with this one. There is no question. Jenny, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Great to be on, Ross. Thank you. Speaking of the big game, the 55th big game is this weekend. 55. Love it. A game this big deserves a big prize, not just some trophy. How about this? DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is giving all players, not just new players, all players. That's very important. If you're already signed up, you can take advantage of this. All it takes is for one touchdown to be scored Sunday night, and boom, your money is doubled. Sounds like a no-brainer? That's because it is. Plus, they got the DraftKings Big Game Prediction Challenge. This is awesome, by the way. All users, okay, get an instant prize if you do this Big Game Prediction Challenge, I found out. So it's anywhere between $3 and $25,000. So why not? And you can enter the pool all the way up to the first three quarters of the game because the pool, all the questions are in the fourth quarter. So it's pretty awesome. Make sure you do the Super Bowl prediction pool for sure. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code ROSS to get a shot at doubling your money if a touchdown is scored in Sunday's game. I'd be shocked if one wasn't. That's promo code ROSS to get a shot at doubling your money during Sunday night season finale only. At DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. The Jersey and Colorado only. Research supplies. See DraftKings.com slash prediction challenge slash DFS. For details, gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Morning, Ross. we got to get to the big news from the weekend. The Los Angeles Rams trade this year's third-round pick next year, 2022 and 2023. Their first-round picks and Jared Goff. To the Lions for Matthew Stafford. Wow. That was a biggie. And it's interesting because listening to Adam Schefter on Friday, you could tell the Stafford news was going to happen. And he referenced when I talked about golf and Wentz and the dead cat money, he referenced that teams can get creative. Well, the Rams certainly did that. Here's, here's my thoughts on the trade. First of all, what some of the things I like about it. I don't like when people have built-in excuses. And I don't like what I perceive to be lazy narratives. So for Stafford, the excuse was always the Lions franchise is terrible. For McVay, it was always golf stinks, right? Well, can't say golf stinks anymore. I mean, you can't say that's the issue. If the Rams don't win big... It's not because golf stinks, right? They got the quarterback that McVay wanted. As for Stafford, he can't say, well, it's the Lions and it's the terrible Lions franchise. Not anymore. So there's no more built-in excuses for McVay or Stafford, which I like. The Rams are fascinating. They are taking a totally different approach to roster building. I'm not sure they have any guy, Bri, making like between a million and 10 million. It feels like they have like six or seven guys making more than 10 million, including several making more than 20, like Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald and Stafford and true difference makers. 
and they got a lot of guys making the minimum. And you know what? It kind of worked this past year. They had a good team. They had a good season. If they had gotten better quarterback play, who knows? Or maybe if Donald had been healthy in the playoffs, who knows? So I, I'm fascinated by it. I like when teams do things outside of the box. Now, the flip side is they had to give up extra here to get rid of Goff's contract. And so if we're going to give him credit for getting rid of Goff's contract, how about a little criticism or blame for giving Goff that contract in the first place? The next thing is, as for the Lions, boy, to get two first-round picks and a third-round pick, that's, that's significant. And to get a very competent quarterback. You know, like... Jared Goff is a solid quarterback for Dan Campbell to build this team around. He obviously wants to run the ball a lot. And Goff is very competent in play-action pass, you know, to, to make those throws. So I really like this move for both teams. Takes. So Jared Goff uh, said he's happy to be on a team that wants and appreciates him. Stafford, happy about being on a team Anywhere except for New England. That's interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, look, Golf was basically making it clear that he realizes he was not wanted in L.A., not appreciated. And so I, I get that. But honestly, Jared, you're, you're kind of were a throw-in in the deal, for being honest, right? Like, the Lions, I'm not sure they were dying to have you, but they were going to get an extra first-round pick probably to get you. And so that was what put it over the edge. So I don't know that I would say that they wanted you and appreciate you as much as maybe you think. And the report from Tom Curran that Stafford told the Lions he would go anywhere other than New England is very, very interesting, but not surprising. I mean, players talk, right? So the word is out that New England is not necessarily the most enjoyable place to play football. And that there are some difficulties playing there. I mean, Stafford's probably talked to Tom Brady before. He's probably talked to Rob Gronkowski before. Other guys, you know, when he was in Detroit, a lot of those guys came from New England. He kind of knows the, the Patriot way from Patricia and Bob Quinn. Doesn't seem to be a big fan of it. And by the way, the Patriots, they've got some real challenges this year in terms of skill positions. And maybe they could sell him on, well, we'll, we'll, we'll sign Kenny Galladay in free agency. Maybe, but I don't think Stafford wanted to take that chance. Takes. Green Bay Packers are moving on from defensive, Mike, uh, defensive coordinator Mike Pettin. Right, and I tweeted this over the weekend, Bri, at Ross Tucker NFL. You realize like in their last five games, six games, including the playoffs, they gave up like 16 points. 14, 16, 14, 18 to the Rams in the playoffs, and then 31 to the Bucks. But think about that for a second. First of all, they they intercepted Tom Brady three times. Secondly, how many points would they have given up if Aaron Rodgers didn't throw the pick at the end of the first half? Or if Aaron Jones didn't fumble and give the ball to the Bucks inside the 10-yard line on the first drive of the second half, right? I mean... They would have given up only 20-something. So the Packers might be able to be better on defense now. They might. But I would just say good luck. I mean, there's not a lot of room for improvement 
based on how the Packers were playing the last six, seven games. People point out, well, they played this team. They played that team. Dude, they're giving up 14 and 16 points to NFL teams. By the way, when they had a lead and those teams could just chuck it all over, get garbage time touchdowns, whatever, I, I think they actually deserve a lot of credit for that. Patton's not the one that made that horrible decision to kick a field goal either. And everybody wants to point out at the end of the first half, as Steve Fezzik correctly said on the Even Money podcast last, last week, it wasn't that terrible of a defensive call. You're, you're trying to protect against a 10-yard out and the Bucks getting a field goal. It's not as open and shut as like an end-of-the-game situation like people are making it out to be, like the, like the Bucks could only get a touchdown in that situation. People are just wrong on that. Ducks takes. Last thing to get into today, uh, any thoughts, comments about Nick Sirianni and David Culley's press conferences from Friday? Well, I do, Brian, but before I get into that, I got to tell you, I missed football this weekend, but my wife and I, we have gotten into – Little Netflix. I like never watch TV. Over the weekend, we used ExpressVPN to watch Social Dilemma. I'm trying to think what else we watched. You watch another one. Watch Social Dilemma, which is really scary, by the way, on, on Netflix from uh, uh, through our ExpressVPN. Uh, on, there's UK Netflix. And then what else did we watch? Um, White Fang with the girls. I don't know if that was through Netflix or not. Here's the thing, though. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. ExpressVPN allows you to watch shows. It's ridiculously fast, compatible for all your devices. So if you're in hotels a lot, airports a lot like me the key is the ability to hide your ip address and be protected but then even if you're just someone that likes to be able to watch a lot of different shows expressvpn gives you that ability as well if you visit my special link right now expressvpn.com slash tucker you can get an extra three months of expressvpn for free support the show Watch what you want and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash Tucker. So as for the press conferences, Bri, I guess the only thing I would say about the David Coley press conference was he made it clear that in his mind, you know, Nick Casario, the GM, came out and said, we uh, have no interest in trading Deshaun Watson. And David Coley said something a little bit more forceful, like Deshaun Watson is going to be a Texan. He's why I came. He's going to be our quarterback. Something like that. That was a little more forceful, which I think is interesting. And then Nick Sirianni, man, I was getting a bunch of text messages, Bri, from my buddies who are all Eagles fans. Uh, they were not real impressed. Not very happy with the first impression that Sirianni made. And it does matter. I mean, first impressions do matter. But I would just say from my perspective, I don't care that much how he is with the media. And it was his first time in that role. So if he was a little nervous, that's fine. 
What I care about is how he is in front of the in front of the room, in front of the players. And so that des- didn't necessarily inspire confidence in that regard, but he must have been pretty impressive in the interviews to get the job, right? So, and Frank Reich went out of his way to hire him right away to be his offensive coordinator. So I got to think he's probably pretty darn good in front of the room, in front of the guys. That's my guess. Uh, shout outs, by the way, Pizza Boy Brewing, Sporticulture, SteakhouseSports.com, Vision Comics with an X, DinerDepot.com. You will really, really like the College Draft Podcast. All the podcasts are going to be awesome this week. Please check out, if you only listen to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, please check out a second one this week. I think you'll enjoy it. Other than that, I think we're done here. Thanks for listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Make sure to also subscribe to the Fantasy Feast, Even Money, Business of Sports, and College Draft. All available at Apple Podcasts, RossTucker.com, or wherever podcasts can be found.